One of the 20th century's most influential political thinkers was a man in a loincloth, Mahatma Gandhi. On the Ark today, an intimate look at the Hindu who became an icon of non-violence. Gandhi said, you must be the change you want to see in the world. That ruled out violence for him. The time was India, under British rule, which wasn't a big issue for the young man born in Gujarat in 1869, who went to live in South Africa. In fact, he was loyal to British rule until some experiences changed him. Dr. Shumit Sharkar of Delhi University explains. He had some very unfortunate encounters, which some may have seen in Attenborough's film on Gandhi, how he had bought a first-class ticket, which itself indicates that he was pretty well-off at that time and wanted to be shown to be well-off. He got into a first-class compartment, which operationally was a white-only compartment on the train in South Africa, and got thrown out. That's one of the incidents that marked him for life. It made him very aware of the discrimination being faced, and he understood that this would be very much worse for the poorer Indians, unlike him who was probably suited and booted and uh, dressed as a sahib, really. When did he change his focus from being a practical lawyer to someone motivated by larger ideological concerns? I think basically that too was in South Africa. I wouldn't remember offhand the exact dates, but in the early years of the 20th century, as the struggle of Indians in South Africa intensified, well, he was using, as I said, his legal talents, but only uh, to a small extent. Uh, It's not so much fighting cases. I don't know whether he was even very efficient that way, but organizing petitions and so on, which fitted in with the then pattern of Indian nationalist activity, petitioning the government, trying to plead with them, uh, trying to show how wrong and unjust and un-British, so to say, uh, the way they were behaving. But then that changed from around 1905-1906. He started evolving, partly under the influence of a number of actually Western thinkers, among whom Tolstoy would probably be most important, but also Emerson, Thoreau, Ruskin, several other people. These are the romantics. Right, exactly. In fact, I would say that much more than any kind of pristine Hindu tradition, even though Gandhi certainly was and remained all his life a believing and practicing Hindu in his own terms, and he was. He was very pious. And this current in the West, from late 18th, 19th century onwards, there was a strong criticism of industrial society. Uh, Gandhi developed that. But along with that, he started evolving a series of new kinds of methods. The methods which amounted to a kind of controlled and totally peaceful defiance of the law. Uh, For instance, I think uh, uh, the British had instituted some kind of pass system for Indians. I should add that the kind of discrimination that Indians faced was very much less, of course, than what the so-called Bantus, as they were called at that time, the Africans were facing. But about that, Gandhi doesn't seem to have bothered much, quite frankly. But uh, what he advised the Indians and organized movements around that, with the help of some Indian merchants, he came there as a lawyer as well as in a mercantile firm. Uh, What they did 
was to evolve the beginnings of this method of passive resistance or civil disobedience. That is, if there is an unjust law, like, say, carrying this pass, Gandhi called for a burning of these passes. And facing arrest, or worse, if necessary, not resisting physically, but not giving up. That was the core of what he later termed his method of satyagraha, which is literally pursuit of satya, which is truth. When he returns to India, this outlook and this method really becomes consolidated. But it's interesting that although he is a Hindu, he also rejects some of Hinduism's most uh, cherished customs, such as untouchability. Well, that makes him a very interesting figure, because as I've said just now, on the one hand, he was a pious Hindu. He even, partly maybe for politic reasons, but partly sincerely, called himself a Sanatani Hindu, which means an orthodox conservative Hindu. But in and through that kind of tradition, he's actually trying to institute certain changes. Not just untouchability. There are two things which were quite remarkable. One was that right from his South African days, and perhaps precisely to some extent because of South Africa, as some historians suggest, South Africa, where Indians of various linguistic groups, religious groups, quite a number of Muslims, his closest ally at this time in South Africa was a Muslim merchant, and various castes were together. And though in matters like marriage and so on, distinctions remained, on the whole... Indians felt united, or could feel united. So that helps. And Gandhi carries that with him, to some extent, to India. But it's true that by 1915, when he returned, there was already some history of bitter Hindu-Muslim conflicts over issues like the protection of the cow and things like that. But Gandhi not only kept away from it, he fought against it all his life. Together with that, two other things stand out, I think. One is that he came to stand for a particular kind of notion of identities, whether religious or other, where he wanted to avoid total confrontations, whether with the British or with, among Indians, among fellow Indians, with various other groups of Indians. So that is the germ of his notions of what he called ahimsa, that is, non-violence. At the same time, it has to be emphasized that non-violence could seem to be a very namby kind of method. In fact, peaceful violation of laws, civil disobedience, which he's picking up from Tolstoy, I think also from Thoreau and that New England group, well, that required actually great courage. One of Gandhi's great demonstrations against the British regime was the Salt March of 1930. How important was that in the struggle for independence? I think it was of crucial importance, even though the method was rather unexpected, when soon after the call had been given by the Congress in 1929 for a struggle for complete independence, calling for violation of just one law, basically, that is the Salt Law, which made salt a state monopoly of the British and also, therefore, due to taxes and so on, increased its prices. That, for the average urban middle-class chap, didn't matter at all. 
But Gandhi realized that for the poorest section of Indian society, particularly the peasants and rural poor in general, it did hit and it was something which fitted in with, I mean, violation of the right to have salt, such an essential thing for everyday existence, all that have people. So, unexpectedly, tens of thousands of people followed him when he called for peaceful violation of laws. The British lost their head and began beating up ferociously uh, the completely unarmed and peaceful salt picketers. And uh, it was a very big movement. Well, they were rivals, I suppose, in the nationalist movement. And one of them was V.D. Savarkar. Tell me about him. You see, Savarkar is a good choice of yours because increasingly it's being realized, it wasn't realized all that much earlier, that in a sense Savarkar represented the other of the Gandhian, not just methods. I mean, it's not just a contrast of Savarkar being quite a votary of violence and or conspiracy and Gandhi being non-violent. It's more dif- different because Savarkar stood for a tight, closed Hindu identity He assumed a kind of, say, social Darwinist theory that if other communities who are being similarly imagined as tightly bound without internal conflict and whose relations, particularly those of Muslims with Hindus, have been always hostile, so he assumed for a thousand years or whatever, well, Hindu interests are bound to suffer. So all Hindus must unite, forget about other differences, whether of class or gender or whatever, sacrifice all of them and rally against the Muslims. In course of time, Savarkar, who had started as a very heroic fighter against the British, actually got so obsessed with this that he and his followers virtually gave up any meaningful national movement. So I wouldn't even call him a nationalist beyond about early 20s. And that is significant for two reasons. First, it is not accidental that the man who murdered Gandhi in January 1948, Dathuram Godse, had been trained by Savarkar, had been connected with that on similar kinds of groups. Second, this is the alternative what today is called the Hindutva tradition of nationalism, which has been very much before the eye of the whole world ever since that Babri Masjid was destroyed in 1992 and there were bloody riots really pogroms, climaxed by what happened in Gujarat in 2002. And of course, still last year, there was a six-year period when the BJP government, BJP being the political wing of this Hindutva movement, they were in power. You said Hindutva. What is the meaning of that term? Etymologically, by strict translation, it just means Hinduness. And you can be Hindu in hundreds of different ways. But historically, it has come to stand for precisely because these people have gone on claiming that they and only they are the pure Hindus, they represent the essence of Hinduism and so on and so forth, which they don't. Uh, Well, Hindutva has become the term which they follow and others have also followed. It's a nickname almost. Well, it could be said that Gandhi's project failed. India is on the fast road to modernization. Mm -hmm. It is uh, embracing a market economy and high-tech How is Gandhi's contribution to be judged? How does he live on as a powerful figure, if at all? About his failures, they are obvious. Except I'll make one caveat that Gandhi, you know, had, like all intelligent political leaders, both maximum and minimum programs. 
Uh, he was realistic also. I mean, he once wrote bitterly against railways, but he travelled in railways all his life, and without that he wouldn't have been able to organise campaigns. Or he certainly was, he was critical of capitalists up to a point. He told them to be trustees to their workers, which neither they nor their workers even less followed. But he was on the best of terms with some of the biggest of Indian industrialists, like Didi Villa, the biggest capitalist of that time. So it's not a total kind of thing. But certainly there's a big change, not just of an espousal of modern industry and uh, a change away, a shift in focus away from the village, which was the heart of Gandhi's programs, to cities' urbanization. At the same time, in several respects, Gandhian messages do retain a relevance. I'm not uh, referring to the claptrap about Gandhi, which is trotted out by all officials whenever some anniversary comes in. That means nothing, absolutely nothing, less than nothing. But, so to say, the anti-religious chauvinist, anti-communal aspect. Gandhi is recognized, even though in a conventional sense he was hardly secular, but he's recognized as probably India's greatest secular martyr. So that remains during the protests that some of us were active in, in Delhi and elsewhere, uh, after 6 December 1992, Babri Masjid. Uh, there was a special effort made to do something on 30th January, which is the day of Gandhi's murder. Secondly, there are various groups, collectively sometimes, some of them called NGOs, who have been doing grassroots work of various sorts, environmentalist work, things which the conventional political parties, right, centre and left, have not taken up by and large. And third, as again you'll be aware, I don't know about Australia so much, but in many parts of the world outside India, in some ways Gandhi's image is stronger and more effective than in India itself. That was historian Dr. Shumit Sharkar of Delhi University, who was visiting Australia for an international history conference held at the University of New South Wales. (laughs) 